Hey there, folks. You're listening to Screen Watching. We're fresh faced. We're bleary eyed for the final podcast of the yeah. year. But we've got more podcasts. It's just the last regular podcast of the year. Simon, I've never felt more alive. Folks, this is Screen Watching. This is not like TV only better. Television, teacher, mother, secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it. Folks, this is Screen Watching. My name's Dan Barrett, joined by Simon Foster. If you're new to the show, and gosh, I don't know, first of all, where have you been all my life? Second of all, this is what we do here. We talk about things on the screen. That's the movie screen. That's the TV screen. That's the mobile screen. That's the mm. screen that you look at when you're at the shopping center and you got your groceries what going past. It's going beep, yeah. beep, beep. And then you're looking at the sign telling you about your flyby points and whatever else. Mm. We talk about that screen. In fact, 2024 we're mostly focusing on that screen but for the moment it's tv shows it's movies simon yeah. foster how the hell are you doing well we do do all that talking about screens hello everyone um welcome to screen watching episode number 153 what we don't usually do is talk about it this early in the morning we should put into perspective exactly why you sounded so uh a little bit out of it uh, in that introduction <laughs> we got our times wrong it's uh 7 no, no, a.m here in no, no, simon. record this what? Simon, what's all this we business? <laughs> I know. When I say we, I mean me. Um, I'm an hour earlier than I thought I'd be. So we're both literally out of bed. Not the same bed, just literally out of bed. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, no, I, like, early I like to think that the two of us live a life like the Three Stooges. <laughs> so we both got out of the same bed together. And like we took off our long nightgown and our you know, yep. hats. And our sleeping yeah. caps, yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and here we are doing a podcast, yes. Um, but yes, we do have a very busy show this week. We've, uh, we're, we're checking out a couple of the two biggest films of the year with uh, Poor Things and Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire, which goes on nearly as long as that title. And then we've got a fun intermission. There's plenty to talk about. Excuse me, there's some other titles in here as well. Let's not lose sight of the one. forest through the trees or however that phrase goes. Uh, we're also going to be talking about the movie events of the year which is Sydney Sweeney and Anything But You. Oh like, that's important. Uh, I'm going to be talking about a film, like a movie, a feature movie called Society of the Snow. It's a Netflix original, so it is made to be watched on your television screen at home. And what will you see on your screen when you watch it at home? You will see a re, uh, recreation of the same story that we saw in the movie Alive all those years ago. But boy, is this film something. Is it a Christmas movie? Simon, a lot of snow in there. It's, it sounds very Christmassy. It is very Christmassy. I mean, there's the society and it's the snow and it's lots of, it's you know, carols. And... I hope there's elves. It, ultimately, it's about a group of friends who get together for a meal. Oh, wow. Okay. Can't wait for you to improve on that. Okay. All right. Well, we should get going. <laughs> We've got plenty to talk about. Look, folks, it only goes downhill from here. Let's go straight into the reviews. It stinks. I am Bella Baxter. I'm a flawed, experimenting person. I seek outings and adventures. Bella's so much to discover. You're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. I am finding being alive fascinating. <laughs> Bella. Why I keep it in my mouth if it is revolting? <laughs> I must go punch that baby. 
One of the more impressive accomplishments in the cinema world this year is Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things. This is the movie that stars Emma Stone as Bella Baxter. She is a woman who begins this film as a fairly simple individual, a simpleton, you guess you could say, um, and then grows into a woman completely on her own terms, um, all of which sounds... Um, very straightforward, and there is one thing this film is not, and that is straightforward. Poor things. I came out of the movie watch, having watched this film, and I thought if Tim Burton had matured and fulfilled his potential as a, a dark storyteller, this might have been the film he made and won all his Oscars for. Instead, Lanthimos, the Greek director who did Dogtooth and a couple of other very weird films, The Killing of a Sacred Deer and The Lobster, um, he has created this bizarre Frankenstein-like fantasy story, um, which is perfectly timed to uh, work its magic on society. Look, let's have a look at a clip first, and then we'll come back and have a bit of a chat about it. Okay, so Simon, before we have a bit of a chat about it, sorry, yes, dear. before we have a bit of a chat about it, Simon, I just want to pull you up on this Tim Burton analogy. Oh, okay. I don't really I understand that why be that's being made. Because if you think about the, like, the idea of, oh, you know, here's the latest Steven Spielberg movie. But you mm. know what? If George Lucas hadn't really sucked for the last 30 years and maybe he'd made this, I'm like, I don't see how that's really that you relevant. It's one master versus another track. master. Why, why must you take men and compete them against each other? I'm not, <laughs> not competing. I'm, we've had the same discussion, and you've said yourself that Tim Burton hasn't made a decent film in 25 years. And I'm saying that if he had grown in, as, a, as an artist, as a storyteller, and expanded upon the, the uh, sort of school diary sketches of his early films, which were wonderful, um, but he hasn't, this is what it would look like. It has that sort of mentality. Let me explain why. Let me explain why. Just a, just a fun thought, Simon, before we get too much further. Uh, just referencing Tim Burton, I will actually be talking about a Tim Burton movie I watched during the week, which I'm going to say is his last good movie. Wow. God, okay. Can't wait to see what that one is. All right. So mm. in Poor Things, we have Willem Dafoe as a sort of twisted mad scientist who has come across the dead body of Emma Stone. Um, she has suffered terribly at the hands of, of the patriarchy of a society that doesn't want anything to do with her creativity, her, 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 her joie de vivre. She throws herself off a bridge. The body is retrieved by Willem Dafoe, but the young woman is pregnant. Um, he can't save the baby, but he can save the baby's brain. He puts it into the dead body of Emma Stone. So this woman literally has the mind of her unborn child uh, to work with. So she's a, a fully grown woman, but completely robbed of all the intelligence and all the social uh, all the social cues and mores that she's brought up with. So it's literally a fresh slate for her to start with. She goes out into the world, stolen away by Willem Dafoe, by Mark Ruffalo's, um, I guess he's a bit of a F-boy, he's a bit of a player, but in that very sort of ruffled shirt and cravat kind of way. Um, and all the while she is learning about how to behave in public. But in this instance, it's totally on her own terms. She can't see, she's not sort of forced into any of the um, uh, uh, societal standings or societal uh, uh, expectations with which she grew up. She's just this woman growing up on equal terms with everyone around her. She speaks her mind, um, albeit in sometimes a, a pigeon kind of English. Um, 
So it's literally a Frankenstein story, but told from the perspective of a, 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 a female, a woman trying to grow up in this this uh, very sort of buttoned up society. Um, it makes for an incredible story. It makes for a very dark, um, often gruesome story. This Frankenstein doctor does a whole lot of things, uh, experiments, which are which are quite awful. Um, but it ultimately emerges as this really rousing, not so much a feminist parable or a feminist sort of storyline, but uh, just about how an individual can put behind them all the all the um, really difficult sort of conditions that society can place upon you and take it on on your own terms, even if it's with a, a, a slightly childlike mind. Emma Stone is just incredible. I can see why there's a lot of Oscar talk about her performance because I can't imagine any other actress taking on this. She is really challenging herself and her sort of star status with roles in this, with roles in The Curse. She does some really weird and dark things in both these projects um and that's great to see a star taking on these kind of performances everyone else is terrific in the cast it looks stunning it looks nightmarish in places and it should um but the way it plays out is ultimately really uplifting it's a bit of a slog at 140 odd minutes um because it does sort of travel into some really dark corners of the human mind and the human body at certain moments. Um, but I think Poor Things is an incredible film and an incredible achievement and unlike anything I've seen before. Yeah, I'm super keen to see this one. Uh, just a match of a great director with a really interesting lead actor where Emma Stone, I don't know if she's necessarily one of acting's greats. Like, she's certainly good and she can sort of hold mm. her own. But what I like about her is... What she does. I mean... She's unique and I think just charming and just like a bit of an interesting screen presence anyway. But I really do like that she really jumps from film to film. Like she doesn't just go for uh, prestige uh, pictures along the way. Like she just sort of mixes it up with a bit of commercial activity, a bit of TV in there. Like someone of her stature doing the um, series The Curse, I think is kind of incredible. Um, you know, it just seems like she's willing to do what interests her versus sort of maybe what's necessarily best for the career. And that's great. And that's showing in, in the acclaim she's getting for this film and, and uh, everyone else involved with it. I, even Lanthimos, who's directed these very offbeat, very sort of strange films up to now, he hasn't, even even with those works, he hasn't dealt into the kind of world building that he does here. And that's, um, so it's it's a huge step in the right direction for him as well. It's a it's a, a director challenging himself. Look, I don't really know what's strange or weird about his previous movies, but sure, craft that narrative if you need. <laughs> oh, they're weird. Good God. <laughs> Killing of the Sacred Deer was a bizarre film. So was The Lobster. Love them all. Love them all. I'm glad he's around. So it's in cinemas now, um, featured fairly heavily in the Globes nomination, probably going to, I mean, it's not a sure thing because it's such a divisive film. So I don't know if the Oscar voters will, will get behind this, but in a lot of the festivals and a lot of the award awards handed out already, it's, it's featured very highly in the nominations. So um, we'll see. Ho, 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 Simon. Bringing in the festive chair is a new Netflix original. It's called Society of the Snow. Here's the plot. It's about a flight of a uh, rugby team. Sorry. It's a rugby team who are on a flight. They crash on a glacier in the Andes. There's a couple of passengers who survive the crash, and they find themselves tempted by the need to survive in the most delicious way possible. Folks, here's a clip. <laughs> 
Lo que pasa por encima nuestro no van a ver. ¿Qué pasa cuando el mundo te abandona? Cuando no tenés ropa, te estás congelando. Cuando no tenés comida, te estás muriendo. All right, Simon, back in. I'm going to say, I don't have the year in front of me, but let's say 92, 93. There was a movie called Alive, which told the real life story of a downed plane in 1972 of a rugby team who um, crash landed and were forced to resort to cannibalism as a result of the fact that there was just no food available. It's the ultimate survival story where they're certainly not killing their um, fellow team members in order to survive, but they do need to feed on something. And so when you're there and that's all that's around, sometimes you got to make some choices. Now I haven't wow. seen that movie. So <laughs> oh, I really? don't know. Yeah. Well, cause it came out when I was like 12 or 13. And while that sort of sounds like the sort of thing that a 12 or 13 year old uh. looking for their kicks might sort of chase after, it was never really billed as being like a gory, oh my God, you have to see this film sort of no, a production. Exactly right. Instead, it just, yeah, it, it, it seems to treat it as respectfully title, as possible. Yeah, I saw it at the movies and 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 had actually had it on laser disc. For God's sake, remember that kid? Look it up, Google it, kids. Um, but I, uh, yeah, it's a terrific film. Frank Marshall was the director of it. He'd come from years of producing Spielberg's popcorn movies, and suddenly he's out there with a with this fairly sort of challenging narrative about cannibalism in the mountains. So it's um it was a surprise film and, and one that's sort of very sort of spoken of still very highly. Yeah, well look, I suspect that all conversations about the nineties film alive are going to be put to the side because there's a new head chef in town and it's called Society of the Snow. Uh, this one is a foreign language movie, so uh, obviously it's probably a little bit more um I guess, respectful of the actual people you're telling the story of. Uh, again, it, it's the same story, uh, but the difference here is it's uh, J.A. Bayona, who's the writer-director of this. I only really know him for his work on the Jurassic World movie that he directed. Uh, was it the second one he did? I think it was, the one that was set in like, the mansion. It was a good one. Yeah, I quite liked his version. And he's made some great films along the way. I've been a fan of his for, for many years now. But, yeah, that's the that was his big sort of role of the commercial dice with the, the Jurassic World film. Yeah, and look, I didn't hate that one, but, you know, it, it's fine, I guess. Uh, but he's probably better known in terms of actually being a talent for films like The Orphanage. Uh, what else did he do? He did something else that's notable. Um, a Monster Calls. Oh, and The Impossible. Yeah, which was... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's been around for yeah. a while and he's done some prestige titles yeah. as well. So, yeah. Yeah, we're talking about a legitimate filmmaker here and he's crafted one hell of a movie. So, wow. here's the thing. Everyone kind of knows the story, even if they just kind of know it as the joke um, of culture, which is kind of how I know the film. Uh, this, it opens and they get to the business of it all pretty quickly. So, they're on that flight within the first, like, five minutes of the movie. And the movie does go for, like, two hours something. So, if you're considering the fact there's not a lot of backstory and it's really just getting people to the mountain, no, you are sitting in that snowy area for quite a while and you are going through an experience with them. That's very much what this is about. But yeah, they get onto the flight. 
the flood ends up going down. Like, there's enough time to kind of get to know a couple of the characters, but not really to any sort of um, depth by any means. Uh, but you kind of know who characters sort of are by the time the plane goes down. Dare I uh, say you get a taste for them? Simon, I would never say that. Uh, how about we treat this film <laughs> with a little bit more respect than what you're offering here? Well, let's see. But here's the thing. As the plane goes down, the... I don't know if this is exactly what happened in real life, but this is certainly what's sort of um, shown within the film. Uh, there's air pressure, which is impacting on the plane. And so the pressure forces the plane to split in half when that happens. And I'm no physics guy, but um, I can tell you the back end of the plane goes one direction with a couple of uh, teammates, but the majority of them go the other way. But because the plane is going downwards and because of, I guess, the various physics involved, um, a lot of the car, uh, car, a lot of the plane seats are ripped out of the grounding that they're in. And they all start sort of moving forward and like really rapidly just smashing into each other. What that means yeah. is that you get a whole bunch of um, quick shots of various limbs being snapped and people's oh, heads like slamming God. into stuff. And Happy so a number Christmas of people don't make it. Well, a number of people don't make it to the ground uh, because, you know, it's a fairly traumatic uh, landing, which, like you know, I certainly didn't know about that from the original movie. Uh, but anyway, so you got a few bodies that are lying on the ground as a result of that at the outset. But. You've got the guys there that they're at about like the six day mark, I want to say. And they're like, guys, this is a real issue right now. Um, we're going to need something to eat. And so they have to make mm -hmm. the um, ultimate move, which is they look at some of the meat, the meat bags that is lying around the place. And they decide to make the move to start parceling out some meat. No uh, what I kind players, of like about very it. Very protein rich, a lot of muscle. There wouldn't be much fat on a young rugby team. So. Well, this is kind of it. So, I mean, you kind of think for a rugby team, it must be pretty serious because most rugby teams would just be around there shitting on each other's faces and all sorts of other stuff. That's my understanding is what rugby teams get up to in the out, out of hours. But it's all business here. What I like about the movie is that they don't really sort of dwell too much on the actual physical act of hacking into the bodies. Instead, you're seeing the people who are just forced to maybe eat the meats, but you're not really living the life of the people who've made the decisions to go out there and start cutting up the bodies and distributing the meat really? for their teammates. Okay. So they, well, that's a bit of a difference. Up... Let me just point out, yeah. that's a bit of a difference to Alive because in Alive there is actually scenes of, of Vincent Spano sort of taking well, – I don't want to get too indiscreet about this sort of stuff, but those scenes are in <laughs> the 1993 film. Yeah. And so it sort of goes from the opposite perspective because the viewpoint on this one isn't so much that, um, like, we all know what's happening. There's no need to necessarily show that on screen. But the um, ethical structure that they've set up in order to be able to do this, because eating a person's flesh is not something which most people are necessarily up for. I mean, I'll do it. If you and I crash land somewhere an hour and a half, two hours, and I'm getting out mm. the knife and fork from the plane and just trying to, you know, hoe into you. Yeah. Oh, for most people, this it. is a little bit... <laughs> eh, maybe. <laughs> uh, the problem is, if I wake you up while I'm sort of chopping into you, you might start giving me some movie reviews, and I don't want that. You know, it just yeah. makes it more difficult. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, the flip the sort of narrative on it. So it's really about the decisions to be able to eat the meat. And I don't know if they do this in a live, but when they're chopping the bodies up here, they're doing it out of view of everyone else and they're not letting people know which body it is that they're eating. It makes it so much easier to be able to eat meat when it's just a concept 
as opposed to when it's, you know, Felipe, your, you know, long team member. Yeah. Sure, I get it. Okay, fine. Now, Good. there is Let's one crafty on thing. Eating of the bodies. Yes. Yeah, there is one really crafty thing that happens in this movie, which is that there's a character, which is more or less the main character, or it certainly develops to be the main character, a guy named Fernando, but he goes by the name Nando. And so throughout the entire movie, people are shouting out, Nando, Nando, pass me the meat, um, you know, all that sort of thing going on. Yeah. Uh, but you hear the word Nando a lot. Now, one of my pleasures in life is a cheeky Nando's every so often. So sure. I could not have left this movie hungrier after hearing so many references to Nando's, which I can only <laughs> assume is one of the great product placements of 2023. I was going to say, that's a great co-branding opportunity where's the nando happy meal based on society of the snow that's a that's an excellent look really good question uh i'm going to send an email to hq and find out yeah look i, I think it's All great right. so but yeah uh society of the snow it is a harrowing movie uh obviously i've treated it with a fair bit of levity while discussing it here but it is not a light and bright movie by any means uh, it is a Netflix production, and so you'll be able to see this one in the first week of January, so whatever the first Friday is. I want to say it's the 4th, yep. thereabouts. But if you get along to a cinema, you can see it playing in a very select number of cinemas in the lead-up to uh, its Netflix debut. I went and saw it, and this is where I'm leaving my review, which is for the last, I don't know, two years, whenever we talk about a Netflix original movie, I'll always talk about it as being intended to be seen on the small screen because it kind of is. It's been made to be watched that way. But they do get these big sort of cinema releases in the weeks leading into it. I feel if you are going to go to, say, Dendy Cinema Portside, for example, for one of the two screenings that are taking place each day, which are also the only screen, well, the only screen in Brisbane CBD that's screening. Only screen showing in Newtown here in that's Sydney as well. Yeah. Yeah. Again, dandy. Yeah. Now the problem I've got with Portside is the exact same problem I've had many times at Newtown, which is um, largely what's made me such a apprehensive cinema goer. Uh, at Portside, I got sent into Cinema 5, which is away from the other four theatres. I watched this movie on a screen that was in terms of screen to where I was sitting in the room, which wasn't that far away from the screen, the proximity I may have as well have just been watching it on my TV at home. It was an incredibly small screen with some incredibly patchy sound and the projector didn't really seem like it was doing the most amazing work to get that film up on the screen. Uh, look, it's a, um, politely, it's a fucking offense that they charged me $17.50 for that experience. And I've yeah. gone to some of those cinemas at Newtown cinemas and they've got some very small screens in there as well. And look, I think that if you're going to be charging people to go and see a movie, you need to offer them a better experience than they're getting at home. And the only thing I had that was better than I would have had at home is the opportunity to see a movie with a Brisbane city council bus driver who'd skived off work and was sitting there watching a movie with me. <laughs> oh, well, that sounds like a good day at the movies. What well, good for you. I'm glad it went well. Um, I was going to make a very valid point there. Oh, yes, I was going to ask, you, you keep mentioning, because you know it riles me up, that as it was meant to be seen on the small screen, isn't this film in particular, unlike the next film we're going to discuss, isn't Society of the Snow a Netflix acquisition? This played all the film festivals. It was made for the big screen, but Netflix acquired it for for distribution. Whereas Look, the entirely possible. Yeah. 
Yeah, look, entirely possible. I didn't actually know that much about the background of her. I only just came across the yeah. film a couple of weeks back and just heard a really solid review, and that encouraged me to get along to go and see yeah. it. But I will say that, and look, I've had the Netflix experience of watching it on a pretty small screen, so, you know, ultimately, I, I kind of feel like I'm equipped to talk about this. Um, I think it plays perfectly line. well on a smaller screen. Yeah, th there are some obviously sort of gorgeous backgrounds when they do eventually decide to, hey, what if we leave the plane and try and get some help? Um, so when that part of the film takes place, like, you know, you see some beautiful sort of snow backgrounds, but that's maybe five minutes of the movie. The rest of it's really actors standing around a plane and performing against the white background. It's, you know, it's not the most visually arresting film, even though it is visually arresting. Good call. All right. Well, let's move on to the film everyone's talking about in one way or another. Uh, we're going to have a bit of a co-chat about Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire. When I found you in the wreckage of that ship, I considered leaving you. I was afraid you could bring trouble to us. What do you think they want? Everything. What is the name of this movie? Well, it's kind of all over the shop. Is it Rebel Moon, A Child of Fire Part 1? Or is it Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire? I don't know. I don't know. There's so much okay. about this movie which is up in the air, no pun intended. <laughs> There's so much about this movie which is unwatchable, but oh. the very beginning of the movie, as the title cards are playing, it says Rebel Moon, and then it comes up with, sorry, what's the subtitle of this thing? It's A Child of Fire. A Child of Fire. So it comes up Rebel Moon, A Child of Fire, part one. And if you're going to play it out that way, Zach, that means that the next movie I see needs to be Rebel Moon, A Child of Fire, part two. But it's actually part one thing. of Rebel Moon, and so the chapter is called A Child of Fire. Like, I know. That's he doesn't know how to do a title well. card, let alone make a movie. It doesn't get things off to a great start, I've got to say. No, it doesn't. So I saw that, and I was a little bit frustrated. And at this point, I was watching the movie as Zack Snyder intended, which was on my mobile phone while I was recharging my car. <laughs> oh, jeez. But anyway, I yes. started watching that and I started watching the really hacky dialogue and there was the standard sort of Zack Snyder, hey, I know how to compose a shot, but I can't really feel that shot with anything that relates to you as a human being. Uh, there was a fair bit of that going on. And after about 10, 15 minutes of it, and during that time, I did send you a fairly snarky text message. I thought, oh, you know you what, I'm going to go watch this on the TV early, screen. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to go and watch this on the TV screen because maybe I actually do need to watch a Zack Snyder film on a bigger screen than my mobile. But I did that. It did not improve things anymore. The thing I know, and like, here's where my review is going to stop because I didn't watch past the first 40 minutes. Um, mm -hmm. I thought, you know what, I'm going to get back to this and I haven't. Instead, I chose to go and pick up my daughter from daycare and then go and see a rock and roll show last night. Um, and again, it's very early in the morning. So the extra hour and a bit that I thought I might be able to squeeze the rest of the film into got sucked up by Simon saying, hey, let's start recording now. You'll so I, I missed out on some key viewing time. So I'm not going to keep on talking about the movie at all. But I will say this. The one thing I found while I was watching the movie and struggling through the movie might be another way to phrase it, is that I really feel one of the big problems is that Zack Snyder has directed this off his own script 
And I can't help but feel that this script in the hands of a talented director could have turned it into something, or Zack Snyder directing someone else's script may also sort of yield some results. But I think that him being lost too much in his own ability to create the world that he wants, he doesn't have the maturity or sensibilities that extend beyond an 11-year-old child. And as a result, this film just sits so flat on the screen and does nothing more than sort of play the idea of... Um, there was a cartoon... It was a comic strip. I can't remember what it was. It may have been a cartoon a couple of years ago, which was... Um, was it Super Axe Cop? I think was the name of it. Mega sure, Axe okay. Cop, something no, like that. that and it was created by like this 20 year old who was just listening to the ideas of like his eight year old brother and just translating them directly into like this thing. So it's like filled with all the really cool, like nonsensical stuff that makes its way in that an eight year old might come up with. Zack Snyder has got the exact same approach to things, except instead of him talking to his younger brother, he's just listening to himself. He's listening to the inner mind, which uh, was a fan of things like Star Wars and Magnificent Seven and all sorts of other films that he's experienced over the years. And he's just converted it all into a fevered dream as through the mind of seven-year-old Zack Snyder. Notice I kept getting right. younger and younger every time I went through that then. <laughs> You're regressing, not unlike Zack Snyder does. Um, let me let me put yeah. this into perspective. You, go for it. Tell us about the actual movie. Okay, as a sci-fi festival director, I was quite excited to see this. As a Snyder fan, I've often defended his work, um, whether it be the the much maligned Sucker Punch or, or, or the, the DC films that he made. I, I'm kind of a fan. I like what he does visually. With this film, he has taken a, a hero in the form of Sophia Butella's Cora, um, who is living a life on a, a sort of agricultural planet, a, a small village on a distant planet where she's maybe moved into a second phase of her life away from a, a more military background. Um, this small village is, is visited by uh, what is essentially the Empire, uh, led by Ed Scrine's Atticus Noble, a lieutenant who's um, a mean... A horrible individual. You can tell because they're all wearing essentially spins on the Nazi uniform, as you pointed out in your in your text to me, um, Dan. Um, you know what, Simon? I really, <laughs> I, I really like that at this point in the movie, Zack Snyder turns to the audience and said, "Hey, look, you all liked Inglorious Bastards, right? Here's the first scene interpreted by Zack Snyder." Exactly right. Yes. Yeah. So, so they take over this village, um, do horrible things to the the, the men who control the village, uh, demand that in ten weeks all their surplus, or not even their surplus uh, crops, but all their crops are given to the the empire. Um, and Sophia Batella is put in a position where she fights back. Um, so she essentially has ten weeks to gather together a group of uh, ne'er do wells. Um, who are going to help defend this small village from the might of the Empire. So you've got Star Wars, you've got The Magnificent Seven, and most of this two-and-a-half-hour first episode, part one, Child of Fire, Rebel Moon, Zack Snyder, whatever you want to call it, is her collecting the all the, the, the group of heroes that are going to play out in the second episode. Each of them gets a sort of fairly rote kind of space action bit where they're convinced to come on board while also fighting their own fights. Um, probably the most interesting of them is Jimon Hunsu's Titus. He's sort of living the life of this intergalactic gladiator, um, 
fighting just to survive every time and they come and rescue him. So, and, and it goes on and there's Charlie, her name in there, who talks in this Irish accent that's really hard to understand at times. Um, and Michael, who's Mikael Hoosman, who we know from um, The Flight Attendant and one of the Mike Flanagan shows on Netflix, can't remember which one. Um, he was, he, he plays one of the farmers who's along for the ride. So you basically have two and a half hours of getting the gang together. Um, some of the space stuff, the big fight at the end of this episode is is really well handled. It's still got that visual flair. Um, but the problem is the dialogue here. It's so heavily handled. He, he feels his words, like every one, is of such importance. Um, and where is everything in, the, in, in these great sort of space adventures like Star Wars, the dialogue is kept light and snappy or is played at such a pitch where you know you're watching a, an outer space western or a comic book adaption. He he plays his dialogue so heavy-handedly and with such portent that it becomes a, it bogs you down really terribly. Um, I ultimately was able to say, okay, that's two and a half hours space adventures. I didn't like the dialogue, but I quite like the visuals. The one thing that really kicked me in the nuts was that it's the second episode is until April 2024, and there's no way I'm going to remember any of the detail of the plotting um, by April 2024. So that seems like a, an odd choice for, for Netflix and Zack Snyder to make. Um, so I'm not as down on it as the rest of the world is, um, but it's certainly a very minor work from a director who does much more interesting things with a, with a bigger cinema screen. Yeah, I just kind of wish he'd stick some movies which are just a little bit sort of um, down and dirty, like juvenile fare, without him sort of mm. trying to be a little bit more pretentious and try to, you know, elevate he, his he, work. Uh, like that last I zombie movie that he made of... for Netflix was... Well, that was fun. That Sorry, was the zombie. one movie that I think of his yeah. that, that had a bit of humour to it. Um, there's, there's not an ounce of lightness. There's no balance to the you know, to the evil Ed's grind character or the Empire or, I mean, even the heroes of this one are kind of jerks. They're terrible people. And Sophia Butella, who I'm a big fan of, I thought she was terrific as the mummy in the Tom Cruise film and she's done some great work through the years. She's a really sort of blank slate for you to hang your hero cape on and um, I'm hoping she'll sort of come to the fore a little bit more in the, the second version. So, yeah, this one's... <sighs> To maybe a bit of Netflix bloat, maybe a bit of Netflix overspending, maybe, you know, this whole thing where you give a director or a star a lot of money to go and do what they want to do just to get them under the Netflix umbrella. This could be the, the ultimate, exam ultimate example of that. Yeah, for years he was talking about this being his Star Wars, and I think at a point he was even pitching this as a Star Wars movie. Mm. God, I hope they never let him anywhere near Star Wars. That would just be... <laughs> You know, as, as challenging yeah. as some Star Wars productions can be, boy, that would be something. Boy, boy, anyway, boy. Simon, I think we need to move on. We've already spent more time thinking about this than I care to. <laughs> Shall we jump straight into the intermission? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's intermission time. I came up with this one. I'm going to take the lead on the intermission this week, which I'm very excited about. We're going to keep this nice and tight because it's about looking into the future. I've called this one four films that imagine 2024 because the new year is just a few moments away. Um, so I thought I'd take a look at four films from our distant past, one as far back as 1960, that sort of envisioned 
what the world would look like in 2024 and see if any of them got it right. What do you think, Dan Barrett? Is this a go? We can make something out of this, can't we? I mean, you might be able to. I don't know. I mean, I've seen one of the four movies you've... Actually, no, I've seen two of the movies, but one of them I don't remember in the slightest. But go for it. We'll see what I can contribute. All right. First one, we're going to go all the way back to 1960. It's a B-movie sci-fi anti-classic, I guess you could say. This is available to see on YouTube in a fairly uh, glorious black and white. It's called Beyond the Time Barrier. In this film, an experimental pilot flies into the future and ends up in 2024 in a city with people who are first suspicious of him as being a spy of some kind, um, but who want to keep him to procreate with the ruler's daughter because the majority of the inhabitants are sterile. Jesus Christ, really? Wow. That's pretty heavy for a bee. <laughs> so is that anything like 2024, Dan Barrett? Well, I mean, I don't know that we know for sure. I mean, a lot can happen between now and the next 12 months. That's true. Maybe we will all go sterile by then. All, us, all the screen watching, hmm. the radiation will turn us to, to shriveled raisins down there. Who knows? All right. A Boy and His Dog <laughs> is the next movie. This is yeah. from 1975. Um this film opened with the, with, opens with the title card, World War Four lasted three days. There's a great saying that says the next, the next World War will not determine, determine who is right but who is left, and I think that says a lot. That is sort of the basis for this film. A very young Don Johnson, he of Miami Vice fame, plays a young man who wanders a post-apocalyptic wasteland with, wait for this, his telepathic dog. Will we have telepathic dogs in 2024? Dan Barrett. Uh, look, I, I'm not sure that I really want my dogs knowing what I'm thinking about. I don't think I'd be happy. <laughs> or us knowing what dogs think. Maybe they're not our best friends. I, I mean, I know what the dogs are thinking. They are pretty obvious most of the time. Walk, food, poo. Walk, food, poo. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> it's pretty much what I think too at my age, so... All right, the, f the third film in this riveting intermission is called Highlander to the Quickening. The year is 2024. Connor McLeod, played by that uh, he of the great forehead, what's his name? Christophe Lambert. Um, he regains his youth and his immortal abilities and must free the earth from the shield, an artificial ozone layer that's fallen under the control of a corrupt corporation. Will we have a fake... Remember back in the 90s when we were really worried about the ozone layer? I think that problem's been solved. But in this film, it's a ozone layer that has been artificially constructed and Connor McCloud, foregoing all the mythology of the first Highlander film, has to do something about it. Will we, have, will we return to the world of the ozone layer issues in 2024, Dan Barrett? Look, it seems pretty unlikely. Uh, this is a film which I remember really rating a lot when I was a kid, but I've never actually watched it as an adult, and I'm very apprehensive about seeing it because I am almost certain it's not going to hold up in any possible way. But I do like the idea of watching the far-off future. Virginia Madsen, as I recall, is the female lead in it. That sounds mm -hmm. pretty fun. Uh, maybe I should give it a go. There is the Renegade Edition, which is the, I, I guess it's a director's cup, which has been uh, streaming around the place lately. Like maybe I should give yeah. that a look. 
I think I will. I watched it once back in the day. I thought it was awful, but it was a film. Uh, Australian director Russell Mulcahy thought he was onto something by by taking the Highlander two gig. Um, he had the film taken away from him in the edit suite. Uh, the Money Men hacked it all together and introduced this sort of ozone, artificial intelligence, ozone layer kind of thing. Um, and it's widely regarded as one of the worst sequels ever made. But if there's a renegade edition and the fans have got hold of it and made something good out of it, maybe I will check that out. Well, it's not the fans. It's coming from a studio somewhere. Really? I don't know if, I don't know if Mulcahy ever did another cut of it. I'm going to look into that because I, I love the first Highlander, but remember hating the second one, so it's definitely probably worth a look. And also, finally, did he not direct the first? Did he not direct the first one as well? Yes, he did. Yeah, 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 he did. Russell Mulcahy. Okay, sorry, as you were. He he did good work. Um, he still does good work. He's doing a lot of television. Open there. Yeah, I'm a Facebook friend with him. Anyway, I digress. The Thirteenth Floor is the fourth film in our visiting the cinematic landscape that is 2024 um this film actually spends a lot of its time in the 1930s uh but towards the end of the film spoiler alert if you haven't seen it and by now you really should have it came out in 1999 our hero awakens in 2024 to find that his life as sort of a private eye hard-boiled sort of gumshoe in the 1930s is an entire vr simulation virtual reality he's has been plugged into his his uh, neuro senses into his spinal cord and he's lived the life of a, a private detective in the 1930s all while sitting in a chair in 2024. Um, this movie I thought was really good and was both accused of being and also regarded as one of the better Matrix sort of rip-offs that came in the wake of The Matrix um, or came at the same time as The Matrix. We were all sort of looking to what... Um, the technology the future was going to look like and virtual reality was kind of a thing for a while. So maybe this has gotten the closest to what 2024 is really like, not plugging into our literal nerve center, but um, that can only be a matter of a week's away, can't it? Yeah. So look, this film it did come out in 99. So it's not like it's a rip off of the matrix. Uh, it's no. just, you know, had the misfortune of coming out roughly around the same time. Uh, also, Existence, the Cronenberg uh, film, has a similar yep. VR um, you know, story taking place about the same time. Uh, I remember, here's the thing, and I don't like talking about this too much because it's one of these things where history has not really been on my side on this one. I wasn't that crazy about The Matrix when it came out, and I've never actually been that crazy about it since, but I really remember liking this movie. Yeah, I remember liking this movie, and I never saw it at the cinema. This was a, a VHS sort of evening watch for me but i remember it quite fondly gretchen mole i think was the lead actor and and craig Bierko, who we just don't hear much of nowadays he was this was his shot at leading man stardom as well yeah look i'm a big uh gretchen mole fan mm. always have been always have been all right mm. so there you get a look into the world of 2024 as imagined by by movies of the last few decades i'd definitely check out beyond the time barrier um which is all over netflix i think a boy and his dog is too so um enjoy happy new year everyone look out for all those developments in 2024 and just to update people on the last segment there the highlander 2 renegade edition apparently uh, russell mulcahy uh director i'll oh, release his director's cut in 95 and that was known as oh, the wow. Renegade Edition. 
And that has subsequently become the main version of the film that's available because the original theatrical Beautiful. cut did not have enough demand to warrant further production for home media. That said, I've only ever seen the original cut. So I wonder you know, if the I Renegade, that is that, uh, would Renegade be all over the YouTube? I don't know. We'll have to check that out. Look, I'm, I haven't looked it up, but I'm pretty certain I saw it on 7 Plus a couple of weeks ago. No way. Really? Way. The Renegade cut's available for streaming. That's awesome. Yeah. Dan Barrett, what else have you been watching? Uh, look, I've been watching a few things. So primarily my rewatch of LA Law continues um, midway through season three at the moment. Now, I didn't know she was going to be in the program, but I also knew that I would see her at some point cropping up in the program. But in one of the most recent episodes I saw, Terry Hatcher, star of Lois and Clark and Desperate Housewives, she cropped up because through the late 80s going into the early 90s, she was one of these casting it girls. If there was a TV oh, show yeah. around, like she was definitely making an appearance somewhere in it. Um, and this one was, um, it didn't seem that far a stretch from her Seinfeld appearance as the lady with the potentially fake buzzies, but they're real and are spectacular. Yes, they were. Uh, this was her as a former playmate who had um, taken to um, spending time in a nudist colony. Anyway, she was attracting the wrong sorts of people there and it was a legal case regarding that. But she is introduced into the episode in a very Austin Powers style, hey, here's a fair bit of nudity, but with all the bits hidden by strategically placed <laughs> things around the room. Anyway, oh, I've got to very that. funny. That sounds like a lot of fun. Oh, good one. Yeah. Terry Hatcher. Huge I fun. So anyway, watch that. Face to face, I interviewed Terry Hatcher when she came out here to promote Coraline. She was the voice of the mother in that, that Henry Selleck animated film. And um, yeah, she was very sweet and very funny and was happy to talk about the film, but also just riff on anything. So she was, yeah, I remember she was delightful and, and certainly very beautiful. Yes, um, she is spectacular. Yeah, look, so, uh, oh, I, I love Terry Hatcher I, so much, but also my understanding is she's a complete nightmare to work with and just, yeah, just I've heard the, same the thing. worst. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, the other thing I saw, sign which has a bit more sort of um, weight to it, um, I went mm. to the movies during the week and saw a film called Batman Returns. At the movies? At the movies, at this picture house. Sometimes they play older movies. And because it's Christmas time, at the retro, moment, Palace. Yeah. yeah. But Palace are playing Christmas movies every night at six o'clock leading into Christmas. Uh, nice. I believe that tonight at my local Palace, they're screening It's a Wonderful Life, which they screened across Ooh. two nights. Uh, two separate screenings. Like you don't see the first half and then have to come back the next night. It's not that sort of movie. Sure. It's not. It's a Wonderful Life, colon, A Child of Fire, part one. <laughs> which is a shame. Uh, but anyway, they played Batman Returns. Uh, so I haven't watched it maybe in like five to 10 years thereabouts, but I've seen the film a whole yeah. bunch of times. So, you know, I'm very familiar with it. I saw it in the cinema as a kid in 92. Um, my memory of leaving it was my dad rubbishing the penguins at the very end and talking about how the movie was ridiculous and um, trashing it. And I remember just quietly <laughs> thinking, I think that was amazing. And yeah. I sat there and I was watching it and I don't know, I kind of think the film's a little bit amazing. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think it's like as a movie, like there's suddenly flaws with it. The pacing is very strange. Like there's no acts one, two and three. It's really just act one that just kind of keeps on continuing. Like there's no real sort of Not variation sure. in uh, plot evolution. Like it's kind of what's there at the very beginning just is what rides it out for you. But 
what I really like about it is that it's actually really quite adult. Like it's a fairy tale movie oh, yeah. in the way that Tim Burton movies are. But there's something about the script from Heather's writer Daniel Walters, uh, who um, who did the story, but then actually did the screenplay, where he just doesn't seem afraid at all to start taking some uh, very sort of adult wordplay. There's the sequence where they're at the Max Shrek uh, masquerade ball towards the very end of the movie, and oh gosh, I'm trying to think of what the actual sort of phrasing is. Um, there's a little bit of a flirtatious back and forth between Bruce Wayne oh. and Selena Kyle who are dancing on the floor. Sure. But anyway, as uh, th- there's some sort of um, joke about him having a semi-erection while dancing with her or something, and it's like fairly overt, and I just kind of thought I didn't really expect to see this in a Warner Brothers Batman live-action film. Well, I mean, as someone whose mobile phone wall photo is mid late 80s early 90s michelle pfeiffer that a cat woman has never looked so um has never been so incorrect so, so perfectly as uh selena coles as, okay. as michelle pfeiffer selena cole she's extraordinary in this no no simon incorrect the greatest cat woman is julie newmar look i love michelle no, pfeiffer in this movie i think she's great but julie newmar is especially fantastic as Catwoman, and there's never been anyone better than her also, no, if you want to talk really about Catwoman, no. no, 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 Simon, you don't know what you're talking about here. Uh, but the other thing is <laughs> that if exactly you are going to talk, Simon, if you are going to talk about Catwoman and use the word perfect, you are legally obligated to say perfect. You can't perfect. say perfect. <laughs> yeah. So, look, all right. So it holds you've up. You've been school Let's been move doing on. The rounds. It's it has been doing the rounds. It's play, it played at the um, Astor Theatre down in. Oh no, it played at. Uh, ACMI through the Cinemaniacs team in Melbourne just a couple of weeks ago. So Batman Returns is getting a bit of retro love on the big screen, which is which is great to see. I should watch it again. It's mm. so also, good. Simon, a, a better mo- better Christmas movie than Die Hard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, my God, they're also screening Love Actually. They're, they're not screening Love Actually again in Brisbane, are they? Oh, yeah, that always gets a place somewhere. I don't know it's part of the same run of films, but, yeah. Uh, also, I'm just going to say, if you wanted to look for 80s actioners that you're just trying to pass off as Christmas movies, Lethal Weapon, it's a much more pure Christmas movie than Die Hard is, but whatever. Simon, what have you been watching? I went along to the uh, preview screening, the premiere here in Sydney of Anyone But You. This is the new Sony Pictures romantic comedy starring It Girl Sydney Sweeney and Mr. Pex, uh, Glenn Powell, who you know from Top Gun Maverick and a couple of other things. Um, the rom-com is a tough genre to pull off. It's largely disappeared uh, from the big screen and has become the realm of the, the small screen filmmaker nowadays. Anyone but you is trying to resurrect the, the big screen experience, the rom-com experience that we all enjoyed. Um, I guess it kind of peaked for the 80s through the 90s when the Julia Roberts and the Meg Ryans of the world were were um, dominating the screen. Um, anyone but you fails terribly. Uh, it's directed by Will Gluck, good name, Will, um, and he has done some good work in the past. Easy A was a Easy A film. Yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, but his other stuff, uh, Friends with Benefits, have been fairly middle-of-the-road type of un- uninspired um, rom-coms and with this one he finds two stars which certainly look the part on screen they're both beautiful people but they're kind of lacking in chemistry and those sort of extreme character moments that make 
rom-coms work uh and i by that i'm saying that terrible scene in my best friend's wedding where they all sit around and sing that song in the restaurant um nobody does it in real life but it kind of works in a rom-com world uh there are a lot of those that just don't play out in anyone but you um it's actually got some good reviews coming out of america but i can tell you the mood in the cinema when we watched this was was fairly dire and the mumblings as the, the film sort of grown to an end was that this is not playing well with this audience. This was despite Sidney Sweeney and Will Gluck and Brian Brown and a couple of the support players being there to introduce the film. She's tiny in real life, uh, certainly very lovely, um, speaks with a very thick American accent, which was a little bit hard to understand when she introduced the film, but, um, but her few minutes in front of the screen was a whole lot more enchanting than anything that happened for the next 100 minutes on the screen. So anyone but you is in cinemas on December 26th and not really worth your time. Good screaming, good streaming movie, and they're going to not want me saying that. But you know what else I watched, Dan? Are you a rom-com fan? You, you enjoy a rom-com. Do you, oh, do you sit down with your wife and watch a bit of a rom-com every now and again? Look, uh, no. I mean, sorry, just briefly. Uh, I was actually I got invited to a media screening like this, the cast weren't there. Because heaven forbid that, you know, they come to Brisbane and not Sydney. But, you know, Good I suppose Lord, there's like yeah. three people that work in the media in Brisbane. So I get it. Uh, but I, I do think that Sydney Sweeney is genuinely a star. Okay. And yes. even if she isn't really, I, I don't know if she's necessarily quite broken through 100% yet where my mum probably knows who she is. But, like, it's on the cusp. Like, she just kind of feels like she is a couple of roles away, f- like, from films like this to just cutting through yeah. that mainstream in a really big way. Like there's something about her, which, you know, I just think is just, you know, I mean, she's an attractive lady, but like, it's more than that. Like she's got that sort of indescribable star quality. Uh, Have you seen her, just let me jump in there quickly. Let me just yep. jump in there quickly. Have you seen her in the, as the woman in the uh, Cadillac in the new, latest Rolling Stone music video? She literally sort of cruises around LA gyrating in the backseat of a, 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 soft top car while uh, Mick and the boys burst out their latest song. It's, oh, it's quite a scene, man. Wait, she's in the back of the car. Are they driving? No, <laughs> no, they're too old. They're not allowed to drive. No, they're oh, all that's on what I was gonna ask, yeah. Sunset Boulevard, <laughs> Sunset Sorry, Boulevard you... singing their latest song. It's a terrific clip and she, she really sort of va-va-vooms it up in there and she's copying a bit of flack for sort of, um, uh, there was an article suggesting that she, you know, put feminism back a hundred years by doing this kind of rock music video vixen. But she said, no way. I felt great doing it. I'm gyrating in a topless car to a Mick Jagger song. This is what I want to do with my life. So get screw you, the rest of you. So good luck with that. So, um, yeah, I think she's good on her. Sorry, interrupted what you're going to say. To answer your question, uh, like, you know, occasionally a rom-com sort of thing will play in the household, but it's not really like it's a preferred genre within the house. And um, I'm not against the rom-com. I've, you know, had you know, plenty of, you know, rom-com experience in the past. Uh, I was actually fairly interested in seeing this film because I like her and it looked fairly sort of, um, you know, inoffensive enough to get along to. Hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe it'll play well with the summer crowds. It's, Sydney looks lovely in it, I should say. Both Sydneys. Um, the other one that I watched, and this one is, was a, a cinema release for a while, but had been bumped to the Paramount Plus channel. It's called Finest Kind. 
This has a terrific cast. Ben Foster, Tommy Lee Jones, the other it girl at the moment, Jenna Ortega, and young Aussie, or born in London, but young Aussie actor Toby Wallace. Um, it's the story of a fishing community in upstate uh, East Coast America. Oh, talk with the big accents like that. Um, ben Foster's the captain of the boat. Toby Wallace is his younger brother who has an opportunity to create a life for himself elsewhere, but also wants to be on the ship. Tommy Lee Jones is the haggard old fisherman father who lends the boat. Um, they're, having, they're pulling in a great haul, decide to just cross over into Canadian waters briefly and get caught doing that. The ship gets impounded, so all of a sudden they're $100,000 on the hook for the fine, which gives the opportunity for the local drug runner to come along and say, hey, I'll pay you $100,000 if you bring a whole batch, bunch of heroin up the river for me, and from that, uh, terrible things ensue. Um, this is a Brian Helgeland film who won the Oscar for LA Confidential, has done some really good work over the year, very much divided into a family drama in the first half and a crime story and a crime thriller in the second half. Doesn't always gel perfectly well, but it's a very authentic look at this sort of fishing community and fishing life and the family dynamics that are, are torn apart by how things develop. So um, I can see why it got bumped from the cinema um, because it's it sort of stumbles a bit in the character department. But as a good old-fashioned bit of melodrama, it, it kind of works really well and it's on Paramount+. Plus. Yeah, I kind of miss seeing this sort of film in the cinema a bit, so I might get this look. Me too. That's exactly what button. I thought, yeah. Yeah, I thought yeah. that as well. Christmas Day, 1973, December 25. Uh, just for those who don't know. The year's eventual Best Picture winner, starring the decade's two biggest male stars, that might start a fight, was released. Can you name the film? Uh, like, like, I'm just going to assume that this is... Uh, oh, gosh, why have I forgotten the name of the film? Um, Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, Butch Cassidy. Yes. Yes, it was. No, it wasn't that film, but they, yeah. they were the two stars, Redford and Newman, in their second pairing, The Sting. Ah, uh, right, 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 right. There you go. No, Butch Cassidy was a late 60, 68 or 69. Ah, see, I December think yeah, I knew it wasn't right year wise. Yeah. December 28, 1949. God, look, we are going back. Studio giant 20th, 20th Century Fox announces it will be moving into which exciting new sector of the entertainment industry? I don't new sector like makes me think like it's too early for them to be moving into television. So like I don't know, maybe color cinema. I don't no, know. No color cinema brown for what? No, it was television. They started into well, just, the world of television. I was production. TV. Okay. Yeah. yeah I can never really work out with TV like when people were making stuff. Uh, and finally, December thirty-one. Look, listen to this. Nineteen twenty-nine. For the first time, the BBC uses what iconic British sound as its station ID. This is a little off the screen watching path because obviously this isn't, this isn't screen watching. This is the, their radio ID, but they went on to use it on the television as well. What iconic British sound as its station ID? I mean, it violates everything about what we do here. Every single thing. It uh, was the station ID based. Was the ID based around uh, Big Ben? Yes, the chiming of Big Ben. Well done, sir. 
Okay, cool. Well, at least I got one of them right. Ah, I guess that allows me permission to move into the birthday quiz. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. I've tweaked the format a little bit here just for the so we can get on board with the whole seasonal merriment, the, the festive season joy. So I've chosen four birthdays from across the year, and you've got to guess what they all have in common. Ready for this? 13th of June, okay. 1953. Sorry, Simon. Tim Allen. Have, yes, sir. Having looked at the names, sorry, do you not think very much of me? Do you think I'm simple? You don't really want me to answer that in the middle of the podcast, do you? <laughs> 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 Sorry, give me your films. Who is it? Tim Allen, who's okay. 13th of June, 1953, one Tim Allen. 4th of August, 1955, Billy Bob Thornton. 9th of August, 1985, one Anna Kendrick. That's a bit of a bolter. And 26th of September, 1877, an actor named Edmund Gwen. Now, what could these four actors possibly have in common? The clue being... We're right in the middle of a uh, the festive season. What's the answer? Could it be that they all played Santa Claus at some point? Um, so you've got the Santa Claus with Tim Allen. You've got uh, Bad Santa with Billy Bob. You've got, uh, I can't think of the name of the movie. It was something like Nancy Claus or something like that. I like that. I want to watch that movie. No, it was called Noel with Anna Kendrick, which we watched last night. Oh, Noel. That's, and it's quite a fun, yeah. nice, nice movie, yes. Noel with Anna Kendrick. Yeah, Good. Now, fine. here's your big one. Who's Edmund Gwen? Like, I'm guessing that he played Sansa in, like, Miracle on 34th Street or something like that. He's considered the greatest screen Santa of all time. Edmund Gwen was the original Chris Kringle in uh, Miracle on 34th Street all those years ago. So, Merry Christmas, everyone. If you're listening to this at the appropriate time, it will be uh, right in the middle of the festive season. What What... What sort of a family gathering wouldn't be complete without this all gathering around the, the Motorola phone and listening to <laughs> Corolla phone? Where'd that come from? And listening to the uh, Screen Watching Christmas podcast. Happy Christmas, Dan. Yeah. Um, happy Hanukkah to you and to. Feliz Navidad to all our Latino listeners. Indeed. Uh, Simon Foster, I think it's time that we get out of here. Folks, this has been the end of screen watching for 2023 for Simon and I, but not for you because we have episodes in the can to get us through this festive period. Over the next week, you'll hear some of the fine opinions of Simon and myself as we go through the top 10 TV shows of 2024, 2023. We're really getting ahead of this, getting on the gun. Uh, best TV shows of the last year. We're doing another podcast, which... Wait for it, people. Okay. Gird your loins. Best movies of the past year. And then also Simon recorded a Simon recorded a little interview as well, which we're going to drop that. Maybe even on Christmas Day. I'll see how the editing process goes to get that out into the world. But anyway, folks. Yeah, in the notoriously slowest week of the podcasting season, and it's notoriously slow because nobody listens to podcasts at all during the week. It is our heaviest week. There is going to be so many podcasts coming through, but what we won't have is a regular episode coming next week. So don't listen out for that because it's just not coming. Uh, but we will be back the first week of January with some more screen watching. 
Merry Christmas. Happy New Year, everyone. Thanks for a fun year. Thank you, Dan Barrett. And Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and yours, my friend. See you in 2024. We'll see you then. Um, oh, sorry. In the first podcast back, we're going to do our predictions for the year ahead. So tune in for that, folks. We'll see you then.